Well, good afternoon, everybody. We're going to get started here. Um, there is a lesson about precious resources and not RSVPing in time because we had sandwiches enough to feed everybody, but of course there's more than there were sandwiches. But uh, welcome to Cato Institute's Hill Briefing. This one's entitled, Don't Worry, Be Happy, the Cato Institute's Human Progress Project. Uh, I am Peter Russo. I am the Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute, and I want to thank you all for coming here this afternoon. So for much of the year, there's been a notable pall over those who prefer a much more limited federal government. The help that a change in the executive branch might bring next year promises more of the same at best but more likely things may worsen at the federal level. But there are reasons for optimism if one looks for it. Khalil Gibran wrote, the optimist sees the rose and not its thorns. The pessimist stares at the thorns oblivious of the rose. And this reminds me uh, that during the Falklands War in 1982, probably longer than many of you have been alive, uh, an Argentine Navy fighter launched a missile into the HMS Sheffield, forcing the crew to abandon ship. And while they are waiting to be rescued, a sublieutenant, sensing an abrupt drop of morale, started singing, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life, the chipper end song from Monty Python's Life of Brian. Does anyone not know who that, what the song that is? Everybody knows it? Oh, great. Um, so this turns out to have become a tradition among British troops. A month later, sailors on the HMS Coventry was badly damaged and sunk in a bomber attack. While also waiting in the water to be rescued and watching their ship fall to the depths, they sang the same song. And a decade later, British bomber pilots sung it through strong anti-aircraft fire during the Gulf War. And truth be told, I found myself humming it to myself on especially dark nights. Um, the last American ship in combat uh, was probably the USS Magpie off the coast of Korea in 1950. And unfortunately, Bobby McFerrin was only six months old. So we I hope no Americans ever have to sing Don't Worry, Be Happy in such circumstances. But, now, I'm also not recommending blinders or a Pollyannish indifference to facts, but rather I want to use this hour to focus on the rose and to introduce our speakers in Cato's Human Progress Project. Uh, first, Marianne Tupi is the editor of humanprogress.org and a senior policy analyst at the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. He specializes in globalization and global well-being and the political economy of Europe and sub-Saharan Africa. A frequent guest on worldwide news programs, his written work has appeared in all the major U.S and many international news journals and periodicals. Prior to coming to Cato, Tupi worked on the Council on Foreign Relations Commission on Angola. He testified before the US Congress on the economic situation in Zimbabwe and briefed the Central Intelligence Agency and the State Department on political developments in Central Europe. Tupi earned his PhD in international relations from the University of St. Andrew, Andrews in Scotland. Chelsea German is the managing editor of humanprogress.org her writing has been published in the Wall Street Journal and Global Policy Journal. She earned a BA in government in English from the College of William and Mary, where Thomas Jefferson was educated, as well as a Master of Arts degree in Foreign Affairs from the University of Virginia, the institution Jefferson founded. You see a theme here. Uh, there she focused on international relations and political theory. Uh, I believe this actually is her last public appearance as Miss German, as she'll be getting married uh, this Saturday. So congratulations to you all on that one. Um, so let's get started, uh, Marion Tupi. Thank you very much. There are seats right up here, four or five seats, so please um, come over to the front if you feel like it. Um, thank you, thank you very much for coming. I am I'm amazed, astonished, uh, and immensely pleased to see so many of you here and so many young people, um, especially. Uh, it is truly, 
um, tremendously encouraging. So what I'm going to do today is to speak a few minutes about the origins of the project uh, that we call humanprogress.org and then give you some of the statistics that uh, make me certainly optimistic about the state of the world and hope that some of that optimism rubs off on the rest of you. Uh, the origins of the project uh, Human Progress uh, goes back to the dark days of uh, 2008 uh, when uh, our country found itself in the middle of uh, uh, the Great Recession and the newspapers were filled with uh, stories such as, is this the end of capitalism? Is this the end of liberal democracy? Uh, what does future hold? And that was th th those, those sorts of pessimistic views were compounded by the fact that other countries which do not share our social and our economic institutions, such as China and Russia and Venezuela, at that time seemed to be doing extremely well. And so people started questioning the underlying premise of what uh, America and other countries in the West stand for, namely liberal democracy and free market capitalism. It also, it also made me understand and appreciate just how fragile um, free markets, free trade, and also um, democracy really are, that each generation needs to be reminded of the benefits of the socioeconomic institutions which underpin, uh, which underpin life in America. Fortuitously, at the same time, I came across a wonderful book by British author Matt Ridley called The Rational Optimist. And that book was filled with fabulous statistics. Now, I'm paid to know statistics uh, about human development, and I was obviously familiar with most of the statistics that uh, one usually comes across. Life expectancy is increasing, GDP per capita is increasing, infant mortality is falling in Africa, and so on and so forth. But this book had so much more interesting stuff in it. For example, the author calculated that 4,000 years ago, you would have to work for 180,000 seconds in order to earn enough money to buy an hour of reading light. That's because back then, if you wanted to produce reading light, you would have to burn sesame seeds, which was incredibly rare and very labor-intensive. Today, in order to purchase an hour of reading light, you work half a second. And so um, we have decided to create a website that would try to bring together as many statistics about the real state of the world as possible and to make them accessible in um, one place. So first I will look at work, leisure and safety. As you can see, uh, GDP per capita um, adjusted for inflation and purchasing power parity continues to increase around the world. You will notice the dip in uh, 2008, which obviously impacted uh, the United States and much of the West, but it didn't impact many other countries around the world. This was a Western recession. Africa continued to grow at 5% per year. 
since the beginning of the millennium, which is to say 16 years ago, real inflation-adjusted incomes in Africa have risen by 35%. Even though we are earning more money, we work less because we are becoming more and more productive. We can work less in order to make the same amount of money and very often much more money. Between 1950 and 2015, uh, an average, Americans, uh, average American worked or works 11% less in terms of number of hours worked than he or she worked back in um, 1950. And the number of, work, number of hours worked per worker have been declining throughout the world, and nowhere more so than in Western Europe. In a country like uh, Holland, for example, a typical worker worked around 2,000 hours a year. Today, in Holland, a typical worker works 1,400 hours per year. So incomes are going up, but the amount of work we are putting in is going down. Another salutary trend which is happening around the world is that the workplaces are becoming more safe. Now this is counterintuitive. Globalization, free trade, and global economic competition were meant to drive, they were meant to uh, stimulate a drive to the bottom. The assumption was that as you have to compete with countries like China and India and elsewhere, you would have to start compromising on uh, labor safety regulations. In fact, the opposite has happened. As people started growing richer in China, India, and other places, they started demanding that they themselves be treated better by their employers. And as a consequence, work fatalities and injuries in labor market have declined. The next stat is uh, international tourism. I put it there because as we work less, we obviously have more time for leisure, or leisure, as we say, now that I'm an American citizen. Um, and uh, that uh, is obviously visible in uh, the number of people who get to travel every year to ever distant, ever more distant parts of the world. In fact, adjusted for inflation, um, plane tickets have been coming down in price uh, every year since the late 1970s, even though the distance has been increasing. Let's turn to longevity, health, and food. In 1900, at the time of Teddy Roosevelt, um, life expectancy in the richest parts of the world was 50 years. That's United States and Western Europe. Today, global life expectancy is 70 years. In the United States, 80 years. And in Japan, close to 90 years. Part of the reason for that tremendous increase in uh, life expectancy was a dramatic collapse in infant mortality. Uh, babies are no longer dying in droves, uh, in part because healthcare has increased so dramatically, not just in the West, but also and primarily in developing countries. Uh, in Egypt, for example, 
uh, roughly 300 newly born babies out of 1,000 died um, before their first birthday in 1960. Today, that number has dropped to around 20. Another reason why we are experiencing a tremendous increase in life expectancy, can you guys see from there? You probably can't, can you? Um, is because of a reversal in trends connected to cancer. Cancer rates are dropping, uh, especially in rich countries, uh, due to two very important factors. One is change in lifestyles. Um, we stopped smoking, <laughs> basically. And um, uh, consequently, the cancer epidemic has peaked in uh, the late 1990s, and ever since then, uh, cancer rates started dropping. Uh, another reason why we are winning the fight against cancer is, of course, better medicine, better understanding of uh, how cancer uh, functions. And uh, on the horizon, we are seeing tremendously promising new technologies, such as the genetic editing system called CRISPR-Cas9, uh, which uh, will hopefully enable us to... Um, defeat cancer, cancer one, once and for all. Now, one reason why this graph doesn't tell the whole story, one reason why this graph is even more amazing than you can see is because cancer tends to increase with age, which is to say that the older you are, the more likely you are to contract or develop cancer. And even though our life expectancy has increased so tremendously, we are still winning the war on cancer, which I think is truly important to understand and to appreciate. I put this graph in, which is access to electricity, which, has, which, which means that about roughly 85% of people in the world have access to electricity, because this is most important in places which are either very hot or very cold, uh, so that you can afford air conditioning. But it is also very important in places like Africa, where millions of people continue to rely on burning of wood and dung um, in order to keep themselves warm and in order to cook their food. Uh, this has obviously tremendously negative consequences uh, for their health, and millions of people continue to die because of uh, respiratory problems. Uh, so the, 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 the sooner we can get electricity to everyone, um, so that they can switch from open fires to um, electrically generated uh, cold and heat, the closer we will come to also solving many of the problems of the, um, of the third world. This graph was not supposed to have happened. In 1968, Bob Ehrlich wrote a very famous book called The Population Bomb, which uh, predicted hundreds of millions of people would die in the 1980s due to lack of food. In fact, in spite of the increase uh, in population, uh, world population has increased by 143% uh, since 1960. Uh, food production has increased, and the food production has increased because we are becoming much more efficient in getting many, much more food out of the current acreage. In fact, it is expected that if farmers around the world 
became as efficient as American farmers are, we would be able to feed 9 billion people. Currently, we have 7 billion people, but we would be able to feed 9 billion people whilst returning an area the size of France back to nature every year. That is because of these tremendous increases in, um, in agricultural uh, efficiency and also because of increases in urbanization. Um, today, roughly 50% of the world's population lives in the cities. And cities are much better for the environment than when people live in the, in the rural areas, uh, in part because we consume less energy. Uh, we also don't produce as much CO2 because we don't have to travel long distances. We are all located in the same, in the same space. And also because we don't disturb natural environment. And as we are becoming more efficient um, in terms of our agriculture, did you know in 1900, 40% of American labor force worked in agriculture? Anybody wants to guess what is the percentage of the American labor force that works in agriculture today? Less than 2%, that's correct. And we are able to produce food not just for the United States, which has increased from 150 million to, through, to 320 million, but much of the rest of the world, with less impact on the environment. Our erosion uh, of topsoil has increased since the 1980s. Education and gender, uh, the mean years of schooling um, per child are increasing from roughly three years uh, in uh, 1950 to about nine years today, globally. Obviously, it is much higher in the West. Literacy rate uh, is now well over 90%. Again, this is a global statistic. And the wage gap has been decreasing tremendously, especially in the rich countries. Unfortunately, I don't have the stats for uh, um, Saudi Arabia, <laughs> but uh, uh, in, in the developed world, in the industrialized world, uh, we are seeing a tremendous decline in the gap in earnings between men and women, which leads to the United Nations uh, Human Development Index, um, which has been increasing um, for the world, which is in the red line, and also in the orange, you've got Africa. As you can see, every year, Human Development Index uh, has been increasing. My last bit is on democracy, wars, and violence. Um, as you can see, uh, the 1970s and the 1980s uh, haven't been very good for democracy, but with the fall of the Soviet uh, Union and the end of communism in 1990, you see a tremendous flowering of democracy around the world. And in spite of recent um, setbacks in some parts of the world, like Venezuela, for example, democracy continues to spread. And this particular statistic is from uh, uh, Center for Systemic Peace, which you can find online. There are fewer armed conflicts than there were uh, in the dying days of communism. 
interstate war, which is to say one country officially fighting another country has pretty much disappeared from, from the world. There has been an uptick in civil wars and there has been an uptick in what is called internationalized civil wars. So for example, uh, Russian occupation of Eastern Ukraine is not called a war between Russia and Ukraine, but simply as an international, internationalized civil dispute. And even though, as you can see in the dark blue line, there has been an uptick um, in terms of uh, conflicts, it is still much lower than what it was um, in the late 1980s. And this is, I think, especially important for young people um, who might feel that the world is uh, really a bit of a mess. Um, but if you compare it to the days gone by, it's not bad. It's, it's not ideal, but it's not bad. We are also becoming much less violent. Uh, this is homicide rates in Western Europe uh, over the last uh, 700 years. Um, and as you can see, over time, we have become extremely peaceful as a species. Uh, in Italy, um, homicides were about 70 out of 100,000. Today, in Western Europe, homicides are about 1.5 per 100,000. What is true of Western Europe is also true of the United States. Uh, we are living through some of the lowest um, lowest uh, rates of uh, violent crime uh, since the, 19 in fact, the lowest rates of violent crime since the 1960s. This particular statistic uh, has to do with rapes and assaults on women, um, specifically, which you can see has declined since the mid-1990s. Environment, and so I promised I'd be, how much time do I have? Uh, five minutes. Okay. Uh, environment, natural resources. Um, one of the things that's happening is that we are becoming much better at utilizing energy per dollar of output. This is a complicated graph, um, if, especially if you can't see it, <laughs> but uh, essentially the orange line is uh, a production of CO2, emissions of CO2 here in the United States. Um, the pink line is the increase in population, um, and the purple and blue lines uh, are um, economic growth. So essentially, we are increasing our growth rates. Uh, we are producing much more than we used to. Our population is growing, but uh, CO2 emissions are falling. This is an inflation-adjusted commodity index, Dow Jones Commodity Index, which uh, is the best proxy I know of of the scarcity of natural resources. Population is growing. We are using more stuff. And therefore, commonsensically, natural resources should go up in price. The opposite is happening. Between 1960 and 2015, world population grew by 150%. Our per capita incomes have grown, adjusted for inflation, by 160%. Food has become 20% cheaper, and all commodity price 
index has dropped by 16%. That excludes precious stones and gold. My personal theory is that as the value of currencies such as dollar, yen, pound drop, they drive up the prices of precious metals. So if you include precious metals in commodities, then actually commodities have risen in price by 40%. But that's still much lower than the 160% growth in income. If you exclude gold and precious metals, commodities have actually dropped over the last 55 years, 19, yeah, over the last 55 years by roughly 16%, and the food is cheaper than it used to be back in 1960. Why? Why has all of this happened? These are my two last slides. This one is the world population from the time of Caesar, for the religious ones, uh, from Caesar, Caesar Augustus or a time of Jesus. Um, and this is GDP per capita. I want you to look at these two graphs and see if you can see any similarity. Population growth, GDP growth. Population growth, GDP growth. So the theory behind why the last 200 years have been so different, why nothing pretty much changed in the world since really um, we came along as a separate species 200,000 years ago. For the first 190,000 years, nothing much happens. We are hunter-gatherers, we run around, we kill each other, we um, you know, uh, live in caves. 10,000 years ago, you see first signs of progress. We switch from hunting-gathering to agricultural revolution, but the real break with the past happens 200 years ago, and that's the rise of the industrial revolution and the scientific revolution. The scientific revolution the understanding of um, transmission of cholera, for example, the understanding of germ theory of disease allows population to boom. And once you have more people, what you can start doing is to specialize. You can start specializing in doing things that you couldn't previously do when you had only very few people. Think about it this way. If just this room was stranded on an island, uh, we would be able to do a few things. Maybe I would know how to give a, a mildly enthusiastic talk, um, a pep talk about how maybe one day a ship might come by and rescue us. Maybe you would know how to build a house, although I doubt it. Um, <laughs> just look at me. Chelsea would know how to catch fish and so on and so forth. But none of us would know how to create a computer, how to recreate the internet. But because we now have seven billion people in the world, all specializing in different things, who are able to communicate instantaneously together, share their knowledge, contribute to production of goods that we all need and enjoy, or sometimes even goods that we didn't know we needed but enjoy, like the iPhone. Um, we are able to have both prosperity and an increasing population at the same time. Thank you very much.
now that Marian's explained the idea behind the website, I'll show you how to navigate it and what it can do for you. There is a lot to explore. We have 1,060 data sets, 740 of which are interactive. Uh, that means that you can customize how the data is visualized across visualization types, including maps, graphs like the ones that you've just seen from Marian's presentation, ranking tables, and more. Uh, we make it easy to find specific data points for reports for your bosses, your committees, um, and also to quickly obtain professional data graphics. Thank you. Uh, all of our data come from reliable third-party sources. Uh, so if you don't want to get data from the Cato Institute for any reason, no, that is not the source of our data. And what, they, what our sources share in common, besides predominantly uh, blue logos, is that they are mainly international institutions uh, like the World Bank, various UN agencies, and globally-minded nonprofits like the World Economic Forum, based in Switzerland, and the Conference Board, a public interest research association based in New York. Uh, other sources that we use include government agencies and independent scholars like Steven Pinker of Harvard University and uh, Nobel Prize-winning economist Angus Deaton of Princeton University. When you first come to our website, you will see this, our homepage. And the first thing you will notice is the large rotating carousel of images in the center of the screen, superimposing our data over a relevant picture with bright blue text above describing the story that the data tells. These images change every two weeks and often highlight recent additions to our database or data sets for which a new year of data has just become available. If you click on that image, it will lead you right to the data set. You can pause, play, and navigate through these images using the navigation tools on the lower right of the screen. And the images can be downloaded or shared by selecting the share icon in the upper right. Doing so will bring up a drop-down menu of sharing options and also a download option. So you can download the images. Um, to navigate around humanprogress.org, you will mostly be utilizing the menu on the top of the screen. This menu stays visible and present no matter where you are on the website, uh, making it very convenient. So let's start with the About section. In our About section, you can learn more about the people behind humanprogress.org, our data selection and methodology, the idea behind the website, although Marion has just caught you up on that, a suggested reading list in our bibliography section, our contact information, and you can also, as you can see from this uh, screenshot, access our library of retired carousel images from weeks past that used to be on the homepage. And all of these, if you click them, will expand and you can download these images. We have over 200 of these unique images. Um, they've been featured by entities ranging from the human, uh, from Human Rights Watch to the Huffington Post, and they're completely free to use. We encourage you to use and share these images. You will not be sued. Uh, in the top menu, you can also find a link to our blog, and you can also see a scrolling list of our latest blog posts on the lower left of the screen, next to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Throughout most of the website, we let the data speak for itself, and we don't provide a lot of context. But if you prefer to see analysis that puts the data in context and relates the data to current issues in the news, issues related to the legislation uh, that you're working on, what your committees are up to, uh, 
then our blog is an excellent resource for you. Uh, we typically update it at least three times a week, and we send out an email every Friday with links to our latest blog posts. The blog has a separate search bar from the rest of the website that lets you exclusively search through the blog and find what you're interested in. And you can also use the clickable topic list on the right of the screen to quickly bring up articles related to your research topic. For example, I have what comes up when you select the communications topic here. Back to general site navigation. The heart of the website is our data. Again, we have over a thousand data sets continuously being updated. And to dive right into the data, we've given you two ways to search. Uh, you can start typing into the search bar, uh, and an autofill will bring up a drop-down of options that you can select from if you know the exact name of your data set. And it's a bit finicky, so if you don't know the exact name, you might want to try the other search option. Uh, or you can select data, which brings up our data categories. We have 27 uh, data categories. Our categories typically relate to major arenas of human well-being, like health, wealth, education, gender equality, and so on, the things Marion was talking to you about. However, our data is also very extensive and includes categories whose relationship to human well-being is less obvious or even in some cases controversial, uh, such as immigration, trade, global competitiveness, and economic freedom. Uh, so no matter what your specialization is, no matter uh, what committee you work for or your boss is on, uh, there is almost certainly something here that is relevant to your work. So after you've explored our categories and subcategories and found a data set you're interested in, when you select it, you will see a screen that looks like this. This particular data set visualizes the percentage of the population in each country with access to electricity. Uh, if you hover your cursor over a particular country, like here in Tanzania, the exact data point value will display. So it's really easy to retrieve particular data points again for use in reports. You can always find the source of the data written out at the bottom of the screen. And it is a hyperlink, so if you click on it, you will be led right to the data source. And next to the source hyperlink, we also display the date on which we last retrieved the data from the website. Because we have over a thousand data sets, it's a lot of work to keep it up to date. And if you think that that uh, update date there is too far in the past, you're welcome to click the source yourself and see whether or not there's an additional year of data we haven't yet brought onto humanprogress.org. Uh, we make that really easy for you to do. There is also a play button uh, on the map visualization. And this is one of the best parts about the map visualization. If you pl press play, you can see the world transform over time. Uh, in this case, you would see, if I could press play and play a video, the world go from light yellow, meaning people have less access to electricity, to a darker colored world where people have more and more access to electricity. And the colors on the map track with uh, values and whether those are high or low. They don't track onto good or bad. So there are cases where darker colors may be bad, as with um, infant mortality, where a higher rate is negative. And we also have a time slider you can see here. So if you're interested in how the world looked in a particular year, say 1995, you can select that exact year and see a map of the world at that point in time. Uh, you can also explore different data visualizations using the menu on the left. In addition to displaying the data as a map, 
humaneprogress.org can also uh, show you the data displayed as a graph line. Um, most of the things Marion showed you were graphs. Uh, a ranked list, a table showing absolute and relative differences, more on that uh, soon. And if you click the last icon at the end there, then you can see the underlying data displayed as a table. So again, it's really easy to access all the specific data points if you need them. In all the visualizations, except for the map and the underlying data table, because those show you everything at once, you have the power to select which countries and regions you want to focus on. Just type the country or region name and select the country you want from an autofill drop-down list that will appear. You can compare up to four distinct countries or regions at a time. You can also make a country or region go away by clicking the little X next to it, which dismisses the country or region. Um, and with the graphs, uh, there is also a time slider, which allows you to adjust the x-axis if you're only interested in a shorter period of time, say 1995 to 2000, some very small period of time. You can slide a time slider on both ends of that now to show the exact period you want, customizing that graph. Uh, you can also see uh, what a ranking table looks like. This one is for economic freedom because the ranking table for electricity access is a little bit um, boring with the developed countries all tying for first place with 100% approximate uh, electricity access. If you select particular countries uh, for the ranking table, it won't change the visualization. It will just highlight the countries that you've selected to make it easier to find them as you're scrolling through the ranking table. This is one of the neatest uh, visualizations that we have, uh, absolute and relative differences. So in this case, you can see that even though everyone has gained more access to electricity, the absolute change in the world uh, is that they've only improved by about 11%, whereas Africa has improved their access to electricity by about 40%. So this is a trend that you will see in a lot of our data sets, uh, where developed countries may uh, have uh, a higher standing overall, and they have a higher starting point. But developed countries, while they have a lower starting point, are making progress more quickly. And this table really lets you see that. We also make it very easy to share and to download all of our data sets um, by hovering over that uh, share icon. You can see links to email it, to share it on social media, and also to download it. If you are on the map page, and you select download. You will download a PNG image file of the map. If you are on the graph uh, visualization and you hit download, you will download an image of the graph. For all of these, you'll download images except for the very uh, last visualization option, the data table. If you select download for that, then you will download an Excel file that has all of the underlying data. And this is especially useful for anyone who likes to play with data in Stata or SPSS. Uh, also, in this uh, upper right-hand corner, we have links to a related video, uh, related literature, and a definition. In this case, the definition seems pretty straightforward, but with some of the data sets, it really helps to have a more detailed definition that explains to you uh, how it was calculated. Finally, just in the graph line visualization, we give you the option to compare two data sets. 
So here we've compared uh, GDP growth with economic freedom. And while obviously uh, correlations don't imply causation, it's really neat to be able to find these correlations and to map different uh, data sets onto each other. Uh, this is a great feature, and again, you are able to download this, you're able to adjust the x-axis and customize this and select whichever countries and regions you're interested in. We have a very active social media presence. These are our Facebook and Twitter pages. I encourage you to follow us on both of them. Uh, you can also contact us at contact at humanprogress.org if you have any questions whatsoever. I think that you should have a good idea about how to use the website now, though. Thank you.